you guys can open up to Matthew chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, as we go through the gospel of Matthew, we, we begin to see the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders kind of just ratchet up more and more uh, until the strain becomes so great that they end up nailing him to a cross. You know, we know the story. But it, I was thinking, of the, have you ever seen those videos where people take a watermelon and they, they keep adding rubber bands to the watermelon until finally, you know, just that this is kind of what, what I picture here is that, that they just keep adding more rubber bands. And so, so in chapter 9, we've seen several examples of this. As Jesus claims that he can forgive sins and, and you kind of see a rubber band go on. And then he, he recruits a tax collector, a trader to his team. And the same thing happens. And then now he joins... Matthew, the tax collector, and his buddies for dinner. And so another rubber band goes on, and you can just see the, the Pharisees getting more and more frustrated with him. They're offended because devout religious people get offended pretty easily. And they're watching all of this unfold, and they're offended for a couple of reasons. The first one that we saw in this is that devout religious people don't eat with sinners. The second reason is that really devout religious people don't even eat at all. They fast. They're, they're, you know, they go that extra mile, and that's what we, that's what we kind of left off last week with, was Jesus enjoying dinner at his, this new disciple's house, Matthew, who invited all of his tax collector buddies over. So you've got a room full of like the worst of the worst, according to the society, just enjoying dinner together. And, and uh, that's kind of where we pick up. So Jesus kind of fended off the first round of attacks. Remember, the Pharisees came, and they were upset that he was eating with these guys. And he quotes from Hosea 6.6, where it says that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And then he goes on to explain that he actually came for the Matthews of the world. That, that's, that's, you know, he, he said, I, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And, and you can see another rubber band go on the watermelon for these guys. Just like they get, you know, it's like, that's like 10 all at once, I would say. And this morning, we're going to kind of look at the second round of attackers. It's like the old, you know, the WWE wrestlers when, when, you know, one guy would get tired, he'd go and like, tag the next team and they would come in. Well, here comes the next team to attack Jesus about something else. Now, Matthew only mentions John the Baptist's disciples, but, but Mark and Luke, in their accounts, add the Pharisees as part of the lynch mob that comes. So you've got both now. You've got disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees kind of teaming up now to come at Jesus for a different reason. And so that's kind of where we pick up in chapter 9 and verse 14, where it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." So this is our text. Uh, they see Jesus eating and they ask the question, why aren't you guys fasting like the rest of us? Now, the interesting thing is that in the Jewish law, the only day of fasting was actually on the Day of Atonement. That was the, that was the day that was prescribed to fast. But just like other areas of the law, they were specialists in adding more layers, adding more to it. And so they've actually, a really pious Jew would fast twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday. And for those of you keeping score at home, that's 104 times a year that they're fasting. That's a lot of fasting, I think. Now, it's quite possible that this dinner event happened on a Monday or a Thursday, and this would explain kind of what prompts their question. 
What they're really kind of saying or asking is, uh, is, they're saying this, devout followers of God, you know, good people, fast. You're not fasting. Therefore, you're not a good person. You're not a devout person. You're not pleasing to God. That's kind of the, what's implied in what they're saying. And this kind of thinking lies at the heart of all works-based religion. So Judaism is a works-based religion. Christianity is a grace-based religion. Tim Keller gives a helpful distinction in, in between the two. He says, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Christianity says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. And there's a big difference there. Both, in both of these things, works are important. One gains your salvation, and in the other, it's a result of your salvation. It's proof of your salvation, you might say. Well, let's talk about fasting for a minute. What is it? What's the purpose? Why do we do it? Um, for Jews at this time, and, and for many still today, fasting really is just a way to draw attention to yourself and um, you know, let, let people around you know how, how pious and devout you are. That's kind of the idea. Remember how Jesus got after the religious leaders for this very thing? He said, and when you give and when you pray and when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who just do these things to be seen by others. That's one of the reasons people do it. They take good things and they turn them into bad things. And, and, and basically as a way to get attention from others, or even worse than that, as a way to kind of put God's arm behind his back. I, th I think this is one of the reasons people fast. The idea is that if I, if I really excel in praying and in giving and in fasting, God's going to be obligated. You know, I've done my part, now he needs to do his part and bless me. And I think we think this way sometimes. And that would be fasting done wrong. But there are right ways to fast as well. Uh, Jesus said to do it privately unto the Lord, which already tells us that what was happening at this, at this dinner party is wrong because you're not supposed to tell people if you're fasting. That's like telling people, you know, hey, how much did you put in the offering box today? Well, I put in this much. Oh, well, I put in twice that amount. I mean, you don't talk, you don't supposed to talk about it. So the fact that they're even bringing this up at the, at the dinner meeting tells you that they're doing it wrong. Fasting is a good thing. And the point of doing it is really to turn away from earthly, physical things and turn away from relying on those things and to focus and rely solely on God. So we can do this, we can fast maybe when we're seeking the will of God or the direction of God. This is a common reason people do it. Uh, it can be done to draw close to God during a time of distress or mourning, um, even repentance. I mean, the truth is that when we were just talking about this morning, when you lose somebody you love or somebody that's close to you, the last thing you want to do is eat. It, just, it doesn't even factor in your mind. You lose your appetite for food. And so this is a way for us to, to really, as an act of worship, let God know that you're what I need. You're all that I need, and I'm relying on you. It's, it's a beautiful act of worship when it's done this way. But the bottom line is this. Fasting is primarily a way for us to turn our attention to God and not so much for him to turn his attention toward us. But I think that's why a lot of people do it. So... It's not really to get something from God, necessarily. If we turn fasting into a religious routine to force you know, God's blessings, we, we kind of miss the point. So to answer their question as to why his disciples aren't fasting, Jesus is going to give three illustrations. And I love Jesus was a master at, at, at giving word pictures or illustrations to teach things. This is a great way for people to learn. It's one of the hardest parts of putting a sermon together. I, I, I hate doing illustrations. I don't, I'm not great at them. It, but this is great because Jesus gives me three. I don't even have to work this. It's like he, he gives me, they're right here this morning. So the three that he's going to give us this morning are, are this. The first one is a wedding party. The second one is a new patch sewn onto an old garment. And the third is new wine being poured into old wineskins. So we look at the first one there in verse 15, where he says the answer to their question, 
why aren't you guys fasting? He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, the illustration here, Jesus is the bridegroom and the disciples were the wedding guests. Now, keep in mind, Jewish weddings were normally a week-long event. This, was, this wasn't like what we do today where you go for a couple hours and leave. A lot of eating, a lot of drinking, a lot of um, feasting and, and celebrating. So the illustration would have had um, even more meaning to John the Baptist's disciples because John had actually used this very same illustration in talking about Jesus early on. I don't know if you remember when, so John was kind of baptizing people and then he baptized Jesus and then Jesus kind of came onto the scene and pretty soon Jesus starts out baptizing John the Baptist and they see this and they're kind of saying, wait a second, what's going on over here? He's baptizing more people than us. And you remember John's reaction, he said, "This this is the way it's supposed to be. He needs to increase and I need to decrease. This is what's supposed to happen. We're not competing with each other. And so in John 3.29, John the Baptist actually explains that Jesus is the one who gets the bride, not me. And he says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's who he's talking about himself, who stands and hears him, greatly rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So he's saying, Jesus is, is the, the one that gets the bride. He's the one who gets the attention. I'm not competing with him. And knowing who Jesus was filled him with joy. Now, referring to Jesus as the bridegroom uh, would have also meant something to the Pharisees, but it wouldn't have filled them with joy. It would have actually been another rubber band going around the watermelon, so to speak, because this is an oft-repeated theme in the Old Testament of God being either the the bridegroom or the husband and Israel being the betrothed or the the bride or the wife. That's common language. So there's no way they would have missed what Jesus was was saying here and what he said. Again, he's claiming to be God. He's he's using language that they would have known what he meant and it would have angered them greatly. The answer to his question basically is this. The groom has entered the building, right? What you've been longing for, what you've been fasting for as a nation, what you've been hoping for as a people has occurred. It's it's happened and it's, it's right here before you. Emmanuel, right? God with us. Is, is happening. So this is a time for celebration, not sadness. This is a time for feasting, not fasting. That's what he's trying to get at. You know, you can almost see the disciples and you want us to fast right now? Do you realize who's here? Do you know, do you know what we're doing? So it's easy for us to understand now why the Pharisees would have had a hard time with it because they had a hard time with everything, it seems like. But, but notice how they pulled John the Baptist's disciples into the same kind of angst and, and the same upsetness that they, were, they had going on. John the Baptist's disciples should have been pro-Jesus, right? They, they, they were, and, and John had already prepared them. He'd already addressed these things and prepared them for this, you would think. So, so why is this? Why is it so easy for us to get pulled into this negative way of thinking, even as followers of Christ? And the truth is, I see this happening to, to Christians today. There, there seem to be two big misconceptions when it comes to our relationship with God, now that Christ has come, that is. People think that life with God means that, that we have to force ourselves to do things we don't want to do, and we have to avoid all the things that we really want to do. That, that's kind of what a lot of people think Christianity is. <laughs> like just, right? And that leads to the second big misconception, that life with God is a solemn, gloomy, joyless affair, you know, where, where no smiles, no laughing, no fun. If you see somebody, you know, feasting, you need to shut that down right away. You know, there's, there's somebody's having fun. It's like, no, you need to be miserable like me. I feel like that's what a lot of Christians are like. You know, we, we, we shouldn't be glass half empty, 
people. And I tend to be one of those people. They actually sold a mug for a while. It had a line on it and it said, the glass is now officially half empty. And I really wanted that. I thought it'd be kind of neat to have. It's not a good look for Christians to be this way. I was watching a YouTube um, video a couple weeks ago, and it was a guy interviewing two very well-known pastors, and I'm not going to mention their names, but he was asking basically how Christians should be preparing for the changes that have been occurring in our country, the persecution that might be coming our way, and and this type of thing. And, And the two pastors couldn't have answered in a more different way. The first pastor, who I will call a glass half empty kind of guy, um, just basically nothing but doom and gloom. The whole thing he answered was just how miserable that this country has become and how miserable life has become. And, and, and he painted this picture of, I mean, he was accurate. What he said was true. I didn't disagree with anything he said. But, but when he got done, I just remember feeling like I have no hope. I have no peace. I'm actually angry because of everything he said. You know, he, got me, he got me riled up. I was seething with anger. And I'm like, yeah. You know, that's how I felt. And then the second pastor answered, the glass half full guy. And and it couldn't have been more different. He got done and he reminded me of the sovereignty of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God, even in suffering, that his plan is perfect and that we can face anything that comes our way because we have Christ in our lives. And and, and I mean, I just remember thinking, and and he reminded us of how the story ends. You know, I mean, he, he got done and I was filled with hope. I was filled with peace. I wasn't angry. I was encouraged. And I thought, what a difference there was between these two guys. We need more people like that in the church and in our lives. Christians ought to be the happiest people on the planet. We should just be zippity-doo-dah, zippity, you know, that we should be singing that song. Don't really sing it because it's weird. But we should be that way <laughs> as, we go through, as we go through life all day long. Christian, your sins have been forgiven. You have been set free. You are loved by God as his friend, not his enemy. You have abundant life. You've been promised a future home and a seat to dine with God at his table for eternity. I mean, should we be walking around looking like we've been sucking on lemons all day long? No, not at all. We need to be celebrating everything God has done, and that should flow out of us, obviously. It doesn't mean that we're not going to go through hard times, but, but I would just argue that the reason we have such a hard time with this is because we really just don't understand grace sometimes. It doesn't make sense to our human nature. In our pride, we think there's got to be something I need to be doing to, to earn my salvation, to gain my self, salvation, and, and, and you even turn it outwards and say, there must be some stuff these guys ought to be doing. They should be doing more. They should be you know, earning this thing. They should be doing more things to please God. And, and really, this is why Jesus said in the previous section that he desires mercy over sacrifice, because the truth is sacrifice is what makes sense to us. I can get behind that all day long. I, I, you know, this is like, it becomes the bullseye for me to aim at very often not as an act of worship or an act of obedience, but as a way to earn and to rise above you know, the, the other people in the lives, because that's what we do. We become marksmen at, at, in two specific areas, comparative holiness and competitive holiness. All right? If you're not familiar with these, I'll explain them. Comparative holiness is when you use what you do as the standard for what everybody else ought to be doing. All right? you, 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 cre- you have this holiness scale that you've created, and, and you measure everybody on this holiness scale to see how they're doing. Right? Of course, you give yourself a break. You're hard on everybody else. That's the way it works. And the goal in this isn't really to, to be holy or to spur others towards holiness. It's really just to, 
make yourself feel better about you by measuring yourself and comparing yourself to others. So we kind of climb up on our high horse and, and we do like what these guys did at this dinner. Oh, you, you eat with sinners? I, I would never do that. Oh, you don't fast? I fast. You do this kind of thing where you're doing it wrong. You're saying it wrong. You're, you're, you're constantly comparing yourselves to others. And then that leads you to this competitive holiness where you strive to be better than everybody else by fasting more, praying more, giving more, and making sure everybody knows, you know, because if they don't know, what's the point? That's the idea. And this is, this is kind of what you see happening in this room that night. And the goal is really to get others to marvel at how amazing you are. <laughs> And at the same time, maybe to get God to like me a little bit more too. We're kind of like that kid that, that tries to always achieve more and more and more to get his parents to notice him and to love him. Well, I've got good news for you. If you're a child of God, he, he loves you. Not because, of, not because you're awesome, not because you have all your trophies, you know, because Jesus basically, you, you've been adopted into his family based on the love he has for Jesus and, and, and all of that. But, but if, you're, if you're adopted as a child, you're in. He loves you. Enjoy that. You know, he doesn't love us because of what we can accomplish. I don't love my kids. I'm proud of them when they accomplish things. I like it when they accomplish things, but that's not why I love them. This is one of the biggest problems there is with being religious. It gives us a false sense of holiness, and at the same time, it fails to make us holy. And this is exactly what John's disciples and the Pharisees were doing in, in, in this, at this event. They're completely missing out on the joy of Jesus because they're too busy being offended. Right? So, so this is what we see. A healing happens, and they get mad about it. A sinner gets saved, and they sit in the corner and pout. This is what we're seeing. As a Christian, are you more focused on the negative? Are you offended by everything that's going on around you all the time? Do you have a critical spirit? Do you spend time looking at others, trying to find problems, trying to identify sin in other people? Like, like you know, the, you know, I was picture like the self-appointed hall monitor that just, just runs around the world looking for violations. There's people that, that are like this, and it's very easy for us to do this as Christians. I'll be honest and say that I, I used to specialize in this practice. I was really, really good at it. And I try not to be this way anymore. It's still something I struggle with, but it's so easy to do. And there's a name for this kind of behavior. It's called legalism. And this is when somebody is just a stickler for making sure that all the rules and regulations are followed without exception. Of course, it applies more to you than it does you know, to me. I, I can give myself a break, but nobody else. Right? And it's why Jesus had to tell people to remove the speck, or the, excuse me, the log from their own eye before they could try to help their brother out by getting the speck from his. This is exactly what it's talking about. And, and this has caused the church to really have a black eye over the years because we come across as people who care way more about law than we do about people, about love. And I want you to know that this is the, the frustrating thing. It's impossible to satisfy the legalist. They will never be happy. They will always be able to find fault. And it's funny because this actually happens in Matthew 11. It compares John and Jesus. So John the Baptist he fasted. He was, a, he was an ascetic. He, he did all the things he was supposed to do. And you know what they said about him? He has a demon. Oh, so okay, that's wrong. Don't do that. So, but Jesus, though, so he's eating and drinking. You know what they said about him? <laughs> it's like, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They, you couldn't win no matter what you did because the legalist will never be satisfied. 
And, and this somehow seems right to us, but, it, but it, it, it's one of those things that seems right to us, but leads us to death. Do you really want God to judge you on, on how great you are at sacrifices and how religious you are? Or do you want mercy? And every one of us would say, please give me mercy, right? And if you say that, you've got to be willing to give it to others also. If we want it, we have to be willing to extend it. And I want you to know that God takes this stuff seriously. When his people misrepresent him, it bothers him. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 1. You know, I would encourage you to read the chapter, but it's so clear where he, he basically says, look, you guys are doing all the right, you're checking all the right boxes. Sacrifices, check. Fasting, check. It's keeping the days and the festivals and the rituals, check, check, check. But this is what he says about them. You don't know me. You're a sinful nation. You're children who deal corruptly. You're rebels whose heads are sick and whose hearts are faint. You're estranged from me. You act like you know me, you act like you're doing, but you're, you're, you don't know me at all. If you knew me, you would be doing very differently. You would be acting very differently. So it's possible for people to be doing all the right things and be completely wrong with God and misrepresenting him to the world around us. And he doesn't want us to do that. He doesn't want more Pharisees. Right? In verse 17 of Isaiah chapter 1, this is what he says to them instead. Instead, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. All of these are relational things where we show mercy and love and kindness. So maybe the better question in all of this isn't why aren't Jesus' disciples fasting, but why aren't the rest of you celebrating? <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the chief end of men is to, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And He's yeah. there in their midst. And instead of enjoying Him, they're just being nitpicky, critical, self-righteous jerks. You know, we're in the presence of God right now. Jesus has come. Uh, it's like it's time to tuck the bib into your shirt and just start enjoying the feast. You know, I think this is one of the reasons that I have a hard time with fasting. I'll just, you know, this is just me opening up a little bit. I have a disconnect when it comes to fasting. Reason number one, I really like food and I like to eat. Usually when I'm making my, my breakfast, I'm thinking about, oh, what am I going to have for lunch? You know, it's like, it's that, it's that, that kind of thing. And, and dinner's not far off. But, but I think one of the reasons that I really have a disconnect with fasting in general, because I feel guilty about it sometimes. Why don't I want to do this more often? It's hard to fast when you have Jesus. It just, it doesn't compute to me. It's kind of like when you go to a Good Friday service and you pretend to be sad. It's like, I know what happens. It's like, this isn't my first Good Friday. I remember the story. So I'm not going to pretend to be sad. And I don't need to pretend to be sad today. I have Jesus. I am his and he is mine. This is, a, it's like I, something new is happening and nothing will ever be the same again. And I'm happy about that. And I want, I want to, you know, we should be in feast mode. Fasting's okay, but, and I'm not, we'll get to that a little bit later. I'll give you permission to do that if you want to, but celebrate. All right, the second illustration he gives us is a new patch sewn onto an old garment. We read that in verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. What is Jesus trying to tell them here? They were trusting in their own self-righteousness and their ability to do good works, the good works of the law. And Jesus is telling them that's the same as relying on an old garment that just needs a good patch job. 
they thought they were doing pretty good and only needed a little bit of help. And I think this is a, a, the way most people think. It's like the robe that I put together is, is pretty, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. And, and really, I just need whatever's lacking here. I just need Jesus to kind of come in and maybe just patch in a little bit. And, uh, and then it'll be good enough to, to pass God's standard. That's how most people think. And Jesus is letting us know, no, it's far worse than, than, than you think. The garment is in need of a little help. It's, you know, a new patch job isn't what you need. That's not going to cut it. You need a new garment. You need something entirely different. But the problem is we love the old garment, you know? It's comfy. It's familiar. I've grown attached to it. And I, it reminded me when I was a little kid, I, I was, uh, they didn't call me lioness, but I had this little blue blanket that I loved. And it had a silk edge on it, and I used to just, I used to just rub the silk edge. My mom tells me this. I, don't, I was 12 when she, no, I was, I was little. I was really little. <laughs> But, but the thing had just, be, my mom detested this blanket because it had gotten really gross. But I wanted it all the time. Uh, I already saw, like, there's a look going on. I'm not, I didn't say anything. Don't, you don't nudge the person next to you when we're telling stories. I'm, tell, I'm, tell, I'm telling them myself. The point is I, I held onto this much longer than I should have because of the comfort that it brought me. And one night when I was sleeping, she snuck into my room and took it away. And I suggested that robbers must have broken in, found the most valuable thing in the house. <laughs> And, and took it. That, that was my logic. And she, she agreed. She's like, yep, yep, I think that's what happened. My mom's a liar, by the way. She needs Jesus too. I figured it out later in life. I'm like, wait a second. But at the time, I didn't know. But the point was that I was ignoring, I was ignoring the reality of the situation. This blanket should not have brought me any comfort because it was disgusting. The condition was horrible. It was foul. There was nothing redeemable about it. There was nothing that I could have done to help it out either. It needed to be thrown out and replaced with something new. And this is what the Old Covenant is like. The Old Covenant of doing works, it might make sense to us. It might make us feel holy when we, you know, when we, when we do it, but it's flawed and it can't save us. And we need to take an honest look at it and accept the, accept the fact, the reality of what it was intended to do. The point of the law, the point of all of these rules and regulations in the Old Testament was to show us we're not going to be able to do it. We can't measure up, right? And, and we need somebody that can. So the bottom line is, I can't fast enough. I can't pray enough. I can't give enough. I can't, I can't, I can't satisfy God's standard. I need another way. And this is where Jesus comes in because he can do that. He satisfies God's standard. He does all those things. And he gives me that righteousness. He says, I'll give you, you give me your sin, I'll give you my righteousness, and then, and then you'll be, and it's all free of charge, and then you'll be able to satisfy this because of me. So Jesus isn't offering to help us complete like a pretty good project. Like, we, you know, hey, I've been working on this bridge. I'm really close. Can you know, maybe you could just finish it out. No, your bridge stinks. It's, it needs to be condemned. It's gonna fall short. It's gonna fall apart. It's not gonna pass code. You need, you need something else. So we need to let go of the old blanket of law keeping and good works, no matter how much comfort it gives us. It's time to say goodbye, throw out the old and embrace the new and accept the fact that we don't just need a patch job. We need brand new robes of righteousness. And Jesus will give us that. He will clothe us in his righteousness. So that's the first second illustration. The third one is new wine being poured into old wineskins. And this is in verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled out and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. So he's using a, a different illustration but trying to make the same point, drive home the same point. Old wineskins would have become 
brittle and hard. And if you put new wine into them, when the wine started to ferment, the fermentation process, it would have just caused them to, to, to break. So you would end up with no wine if you tried to use this method. Jesus is offering us new wine, which is the good news of the gospel of grace, but it's not compatible with the old covenant. That's what he wants us to know. You can't add Jesus to a works-based religion. And there's no such thing as like a new and improved Judaism, even though we want that. And this is why I struggle with the logic of a lot of messianic churches that are out there. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but it's this idea where we take the new and we combine it with the old. And, and then you come up with a better version of Christianity. And I'm not, I'm not trying to make anybody mad by saying this, but I don't understand it. You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. This is why so many people have a hard time understanding the Old Testament. Is you, you're still trying to do all these things, and, and they don't make sense in the New Covenant necessarily. They don't even apply to us. And so it, it's like the idea of the sacrificial system makes no sense now. Jesus fulfilled that. The priest role doesn't make sense now. Jesus is the better priest. The, the prophet doesn't make sense. Jesus is the better prophet. The temple doesn't make sense. Jesus is the better. Why would you take the substance that we have and say, no, I'd rather have the shadow? It doesn't make any sense at all. And that's what Colossians 3 or chapter 2 says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or re regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so the idea is that Jesus fulfills all these things and he makes them take on a new and better meaning. So, so going back and knowing how these things point to Jesus is cool. I like that part. But going back and still trying to do them as though this somehow brings a better, it's kind of like trying to, you know, choose a wineskin is really what it comes down to. You either go with Jesus or you go with the alternative. It's either going to be your righteousness or his. You know, which one would you prefer? I, I'm going with Jesus's righteousness. I'm going with a new wineskin. That's going to work. Mine's not going to work. So he's not coming up with a way to like, you know, pour new life into an old system. That's not what's happening here. We, we, we need to be made new completely. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And this is what he's offering us. So the big takeaways are this. Um, Jesus coming should bring us great joy. Um, yeah, the world's filled with sorrows. There's, there's lots we can focus on, glass half empty kind of stuff, but, but don't forget who's come and what he's done for us. Our cup should be overflowing. When we think about it, I mean, just again, this is a week of Thanksgiving. When we think about all that we have to be celebrating, sure, there's negative stuff. Think about that and let your cup overflow and let it spill out to the people around you. All of this joy that we have in Christ should just be pouring out of us and pouring to the people around us. The second thing is that Jesus came to make all things new, including us. And this is so cool. You get a fresh start in Jesus, a whole new life. You get to walk in this newness of life, not in the old way, but in newness. So if you want to fast, by the way, what this means is do it under the glory of God. Enjoy it. You're free to do so. Fast, worship God, have fun with it. <laughs> if you choose not to fast and you choose to celebrate, that's okay too, you know? Because it's hard for me to even want to think about that right now because I'm so, but there's, there's time for everything. Jesus even said, by the way, you know, when I'm gone, you'll fast. That was a short period of time, by the way. He was gone in the grave for, for a little while. And then he said, hey, I'm leaving, but something better is coming. So if you're trying to think that way, you know what? The Holy Spirit, he said, would he be even better? So again, feast mode, I'm just saying. <laughs> this isn't gluttony. This isn't an overeating 
you know, at Thanksgiving, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving you permission just to, to go for it on Thanksgiving. It sounds like that, but different kind of feasting. Kind of like when Jesus was at the well with a woman. Remember when the, 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 they were all hungry and Jesus said, I, I have food to eat that you don't, you don't understand. I, I'm enjoying serving my father and, and spending time with him. This is the kind of food we're talking about. Third thing is this, God desires mercy more than sacrifice. We talked about it last week as well. We should be known for the way we love people, for, for our kindness, for our mercy, because we've received those things. And this is how we should be to others. Not just sticklers to the, all the rules and walking around making sure everybody's doing it. That's, those are important things. God, God desires holiness. We want, we want that as well. But there's a way to, to spur that on in love. There's a way to spur that on in a way that's going to build the church up and not, not make us just look, you know, like a bunch of jerks or like the glass is half empty all the time. And then lastly, I just want to think about who was invited to this dinner party. I, I don't want to miss that. When you think about who was there that day, it was all the misfits. It was all the outcasts. It was sinners. It was people that the Pharisees thought, why are you eating with people like this? That's who's been invited. And, and if you're sitting at that table... <laughs> I don't want to break it to you, but you probably fit into that group more than maybe you realize. I think we might be surprised at who's sitting at that table because there's, there's a feast that's coming. There's a time when we're going to sit at the Lord's table again with him and enjoy this. And I don't know who's going to be there, but it's probably going to be a lot of these folks. And that includes me. And so remember that Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners and we need to make sure we invite them to the party. Amen? All right. Father, thank you so much for this passage. It's just so good to, to know that as Christians, we have every reason to celebrate that our cup should be flowing over because of who we are in Christ and what you've done for us. And so help us to take this message of hope into the world, Lord. So many people need to hear this right now. We are the light of the world because Christ is in us. And may we be a beacon of, of hope and, and love and joy to all those that would see it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.